Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, Everyone Relax. That's the feed now. It's called Everyone Relax and you can find all of our podcasts here. Tofop, Tofop with Friends, Two Guys, One Cup, our AFL adjacent podcast. Maybe none of them are for you. Maybe you'd like to dip your toe in at some stage when there's a guest on Tofop with Friends that perhaps you like from the Philosophy feed. Anyway, they're all in the same place. It's called Everyone Relax. And if you don't, if you don't like everything that's there, well, I would suggest relax, flip through, <laughs> do the thing that you do like, uh, rate and review, leave it in the feed. Uh, all those sort of things are good things for you to be able to do. Recording new episodes of Philosophy at the moment, uh, been uh, putting some of those away, and there's some good ones in the can. Still finishing up some of the ones I recorded late last year, though, in this feed, and today is an example of that. Adam Bloom. Adam Bloom is one of the best joke writers and performers, but particularly joke writers in the entire world. A uh, brilliant stand-up comedian in his own right, but an even better writer for other people. has written for so many stars uh, in the world of comedy, but also small names, big projects, little projects, weird and wonderful projects. He has written a book that we are going to get into in detail all about comedy and comedy writing and his experience with comedy writing. I found it incredibly uh, just compelling, I think, you know, not necessarily the way that I think about comedy or how comedy is worded or constructed, but I love dipping my toe into uh, the way that other people go about it. And uh, I found it a really fascinating book and I think it would be fascinating for people who have any interest in comedy. Uh, You don't need to have an interest in actually performing comedy or doing comedy. If you just have an interest in comedy, then I think it is well worth checking out. Adam Bloom uh, is his name and uh, I think you're going to like what you hear. So good episodes coming up. Uh, Some, as I said, already in the can, some being recorded in the next couple of weeks as I talk to you now. Uh, The reason that I am bulk recording them all is that in a week and a half or so, I am going to be on the road for a couple of months. And when I say on the road for a couple of months, I will be touring my brand new show. It is called Will Legitimate. Uh, I'm very excited about getting out there and telling this story. I have a specific idea about what it is that I'm trying to do with this show. And in a week and a half, I am going to find out <laughs> whether I am right or wrong. Uh, for those of you who don't know or don't care maybe about my process uh, since the pandemic, Uh, In the old days, I used to test material in the clubs and in trial shows before I would go on tour. But since the pandemic, I've been trying a new technique in which I try to conceive an entire show uh, and then present that show. And then from then, edit and review and reform and rewrite and all those sort of things. But instead of putting it together through the clubs, I try to conceive an entire idea and then present it. So the very first time that I'm going to be presenting that entire idea that I have conceived to see if it's any good or not is Monday, March the 4th. I would love if you're in Adelaide and you would like to see the show in that first week. Uh, Here's my pitch to you. It won't be as good as it'll eventually be, but you'll get to see the version of the show that I thought it was going to be. After those first few nights, it becomes a collaboration with the audience, that show, and uh, you can be the audience that I start collaborating with. Come along on the first night. Um, 
come along while it's still got that excitement and freshness of somebody saying the things for the first time and and seeing whether they're funny or not. So Monday, March the 4th, uh, for a couple of weeks there at Adelaide, at the Adelaide Fringe. Then I'll be at the Canberra Comedy Festival. That show is almost sold out. So if you want to come and see me at the Canberra Comedy Festival, I would recommend that you get in quick for that. And then after that, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the uh, Sydney Comedy Festival, Brisbane Comedy Festival, and a whole bunch of other dates as well, you can find all of them at comedy.com.au or probably willanderson.com. But look, there's a link tree on all my socials. And if you go to that link tree, you'll be able to find links to the shows uh, and where I'm coming and whether I'm coming to your area. If there is somewhere that you would love me to come that you think I'm not coming near enough to, please let us know on the socials. Um, you know, we're going to try to add some more dates uh, as my schedule gets uh, more and more clear over the year. And I know uh, what time I have available and not available we're going to try to add some new dates so will legitimate is the name of the show uh debuting it a worldwide debut uh look i always say worldwide debut but this time it is a worldwide debut i am going to tour it internationally <laughs> so that'll be happening uh very soon uh in the meantime enjoy this episode with adam bloom Hello and welcome to Velocity with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the show starts. It's a pretty simple question that I ask my guest. I ask them, who are you? Um, that's making me wonder if you don't recognize me. <laughs> <laughs> my name's Adam Bloom. I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, I also think of myself as a human being, but since we have that in common, I, I'm a stand-up comedian and I passionately love my work. I've been doing for 30, this, uh, 13th of December uh, will be 30 years to the day since I did my first gig. And I love my job and I consider it a lifestyle, not a job really. I, 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 it's, a, it's a way of living and existing creatively. So I'm happy in that sense. I've, had, I've been doing what I've wanted to do it since I was nine years old for 30 years. So that's who I am. I'm a comedian who loves their work. And I'm very pleased to have you here, Adam. We met each other a very long time ago. We were trying to carbon date this uh, interaction before we actually started recording. Did we come to a conclusion? How old were you when we first met? Did you work this out? Yes, I was 28 years old. It was Melbourne, 1999, so you were 24. And the last time I saw you was in Just, Just for Laughs in Montreal, and I yep. think it would have been 2005. I mean, that sounds about right. So it's so nice to be able to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you today, to have you on the show. And the reason that we reconnected is that you've written a book. And often when I'm doing this podcast, I'm not immediately going to the, you know, the plug to the thing that the person is here to talk about. But in this case, you've essentially just written an entire book about what is I really like to talk about on this podcast most of the time regardless. So I think we start with the book. I've been lugging it around. It's called Finding Your Comic Genius. And uh, it is a, a book about stand-up comedy. Tell people, tell me, like, why? Like, why did you write a book about stand-up comedy? And certainly, why did you write this particular book about stand-up comedy? And we can explore what I mean by that as, as the conversation unfolds. Well, I got a friend called A.D. Lloyd, who's a, a, a close-up magician, and he said to me, you're a walking book. Every time you talk about comedy, it's informative. So why don't you write a book? And I made all excuses. Like, we do make excuses to save ourselves challenging ourselves. So I go, oh, it's a niche market. 
ah, I won't make much money, ah. And um, then I realized that globally, there are a lot of comedians. If you include the new comedians, the established ones, and the people who are thinking about doing it, actually, there are millions of those people. And because Amazon's global, whether you like it or not, I can reach a lot of people if it's successful, as in if I, if I put enough adverts out there, it's global. What an exciting thing. You don't need a publisher. I self-publish. You don't need a publisher. And if you do get a publisher, they might put a cover on it you don't like because you don't have any say in the matter. And before you know it, it's not selling. It's in two bookshops and you're bitter. So I did it all myself. And um, uh, the reason it's different is because every book on comedy that I've ever looked up is for people who are starting out, written by people who don't really do it anymore. And this is an advanced book written by someone who does it for people who are, are mainly doing it already. It's not, it's not you can become a comedian. It's you can become a better comedian. I think it's the only advanced book on stand-up comedy ever written. I think you are correct, by the way, because I am somebody who is old enough that particularly being an Australian, you know, when I started doing stand-up comedy, I mean, obviously we weren't, we weren't in the age of the internet or, um, you know, podcasts or opportunities to listen to comedians talk about how they went about their work, how they constructed their work, what their philosophies about their work were. And so instead... I just looked for anything that I could find that could fill in all those gaps that I had in my, I mean, I'm a kid from a dairy farm. I knew nothing about stand-up comedy. I wanted to work out, you know, what it was and how you did it. And there are a lot of books that will, will help you with those first few steps, you know, that will kind of give you the idea of what you might be looking at and how to construct a joke and all these sort of things. But that's really all that they ever are. There's nothing and by the time I was looking for these books, I had already been doing comedy for, you know, six months or, or 12 months. You know, like I wasn't someone who actually wanted to get into comedy. I was in comedy, but I needed some advice on, you know, like what comedy was and how it worked. And I mean, I am now nearly 30 years into being a stand-up comedian and I read your book, you know, like recently and I felt like there was things in it as a comedian of 30 years that... It was great to be going through and seeing your language for things that maybe I do, but do like instinctively or would refer to as something else in the way that I would think about it. But I'm like, ah, oh, this is great. This is great to see Adam's language for a pattern that I have within my work that I've come to, you know, maybe through a different path to get to the exact same place and to see that recognition. But also many moments within it where my way of thinking about something was you know, provoked or it made me, you know, like actually think about, oh, what, oh, you know, there's, there's something that you talk about. I'll just use a practical example, you know, as, as a starting point for us to talk about it. But you, you talk about this idea of, um, and this is something that like of referring to the fact that it is an act, right? And you come back to it in several different ways, but breaking that spell that what you're doing up there on stage that, you know, that you've done it before or that you, you know, that you're going back into the act or you reference like a story, a funnier thing that happened at another gig that takes people out of the, the moment. Can you explain that concept a little bit, Fle flesh out what I've said in vague terms there in your more specific terms, because that was something that immediately struck me as I'm like, oh yeah, I think I'm, I can be guilty of that. So there's something I call a, a boom mic moment 
Because you know in a film where the boom mic appears at the top of the screen, you're like, nah, this is just acting. Oh, God. Can't believe I fell for this. Of course it's acting. You're watching a film, the credits rolled, but you get so lost in the film that you forget they're actors. And that's why we cry in films. And that's why we go, <gasps> or we laugh and we, you know, we're emotionally involved. So when the boom mic appears, it shatters that. So when a comedian finishes a story, a heartfelt story about the, when their dad died and they went to the funeral and they it doesn't have to be a sad story, any story, but particularly a story with a lot of emotion in it. And at the end of the story, they say, I told that story in Birmingham the other day and this guy said this. I'm like, I don't want to be reminded that this moment was shared with another audience before because I forgot it was material. I thought you were just a person telling me something. And then I realized that the boom mic appeared and this is a script. And if you're a one-liner teller, that's slightly different because we know their jokes. I still wouldn't, if I was a one-liner comedian, which I'm not, I still wouldn't say I did that joke the other day because I like the, the audience to be, to not think about how many times you've done it. It's our moment. Comedy fans and even the, the non-comedy fans now have seen documentaries on comedy. They get it. It's material. You hone it, you hone it. But just because some people know doesn't mean you have to remind them. And um, it's like partners who talk about exes all the time. I know you've got exes. Can this just be about us now? You know? <laughs> I, I went on a, a date with a girl, a first date with a girl, and we went in a pub and she went, oh, uh, uh, ex of mine, we used to come in. I, I, I remember falling in love with him in this room. I'm like, why would you possibly tell me that? <laughs> How's that? What's that going to do for the day? Well, how can that possibly enhance our evening in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> and so comedically, I mean, it's something that, I mean, and this is one of the things that I love about the book, that it is both often you will give your take or perspective about something that you do think takes people out of the performance or the moment, but also it's written, you know, from the point of view of these are also things that you can play with. You may have a good reason for doing this thing that I'm saying does not work. There may be a very good reason within the context of it. Like, you know, the, the book often just challenges you to examine those moments and say, am I doing this in a purposeful way? Like, do I know what I am doing right now and know the consequences of what I am doing? Or am I doing this in an unthinking way that is taking my audience out of this performance in a way that I did not want to construct or manage as the comedian and performer on stage? Well put. So if someone like Stuart Lee, I don't know how well-known Stuart Lee is in Australia, but he's like, you know, one of the... Yeah, of course. Well, to yeah, comedy the, fans at the very least. Yeah, he's one of, he's one of the, the comedians, comedians. He's in the top three, I suppose, comedian, comedians. And... um you know, he deconstructs his comedy as it's happening. He's 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 almost asking the audience to hold the boom mic in front of him. And that's deconstructive. But if you're conversational and your objective is to make the audience feel like they're chatting to their friend, then don't remind them that they're not your friend and it's a script. It, it's very damaging. And another one is um, when the ego gets involved and a, a joke doesn't work, maybe a punchline in a story. And the, the punchlines in stories aren't jokes. They are to us because we wrote them. They're a story. And they'll go, that joke, <laughs> it's true. That, that joke normally works. This is the no. classic ego one. A joke <laughs> fails and the comedian goes, uh, that line normally works. Okay. So you've just told the audience they're not a good audience and reminding them that it's been said before. So two things have happened. You've told the audience they're not a good audience and we now had a massive boom mic in there. So the, the analogy I use, and my analogies in the book, 
uh, uh, some of them are very poetic, and and um, there are some that I feel like that, that you know that I create beautiful images to describe something and and allow it to reroute your neurons so you see it my way. So in the hope, hope that you'll have a more defined persona or material that fits your persona, and then loads and loads of poetic uh, metaphors and analogies, and then out of nowhere, I just went. Next time you're thinking of telling an audience that a joke normally works, look at it from their perspective. I want you to picture yourself making love to somebody for the first time. And at the end of it, they tell you the sex wasn't good. They then take the used condom and they put it in a bin. And as the lid of the bin opens, you see a pile of used condoms in their bin. And I hope that puts you off ever saying that again. I mean, how can it not put you off ever saying that again is actually the most compelling question. But it's so right and it's such a – so where does that instinct – because it's something that I think any comedian reading this book is going to relate to having had that moment on stage because particularly I think early in our careers where we're trying to prove to people that we belong, you know, you you don't know that you can contr- – like control your ego or that being egoless is a form of ego in control in a room. Like you haven't got to that stage of the evolution. You're still at that. I'm trying to prove to people that I'm good at this thing. And therefore this rejection right now, I want to say, no, 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 it works. It's worked before it's worked everywhere else. Like, I mean, did you go through that stage yourself? Was there a time in your career? Do you remember like wanting to say to the audience, you know, this normally works? I, I think my Achilles heel is corporate events when I've got a load of people staring at me like I'm not funny. And I'm like, you, you, you do realize they booked me for this gig, this huge event with 700 people at a Park Lane Hotel, but they're spending possibly close to £100,000 on the whole thing. Why would I be here if I'm not good? And that's my internal thing going out of my head. And they look at me as if they're reading my mind and go, maybe, but you're not good now. <laughs> there was, I mean, I've mentioned, I've mentioned being a good comedian while having a bad gig. And that doesn't win you any friends. No. That, that is the condom in the bin moment, except I, I, they're the ones who bring it up. They're going, here we are. Rather than go, that joke normally works. <laughs> they're going, I can't imagine this act ever working. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and they're saying it with their eyes. They're not saying it and I'm looking back at them with my eyes and say, it normally works. And they're like, I don't believe you. So this is this is a lot of uh very specific sentences just from someone's eyes, right? But I I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. And it's body language. They fold their arms and look back at you with a sneer, almost like, Wow, how did you even get this gig? And um, the, the, the corporate chapter in my book, I've, there's, a, there's an illustration for each chapter. Um, m- most of them are repeated through the first 31 chapters. So you'll see a little kid in bed being read a bedtime story by his mum. And she is saying one thing, he's saying he's thinking something to himself. And it 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 nails the point I'm trying to make of a chapter. It's amazing. You know, picture paints a thousand words. Admittedly, there were words too. So that's probably the wrong <laughs> for example. A picture with a word bubble... <laughs> A picture with a word bubble with a thousand words paints a thousand words, but um, but but, but the corporate one is a, a, a one-off. So all the way through the book, there are six pictures of a comedian on stage with his 
probably how we were when we were in our 20s, just leaning on the mic stand, looking really smug, eyebrow raised, looking really self-assured. And then at the last chapter, the bonus chapter, he's in a dinner suit and he's not leaning on a mic because there isn't a mic stand. He's not leaning on a stand. He's got a radio mic and he's clutching it like it's a teddy bear. And rather than there being an audience, there's no one because that suggests he's far away from the audience on this horrible stage with a dance floor in between him and them, all the hurdles. And he's thinking to himself, I can't believe how much I'm getting paid for this. And there's a whisper bubble coming from off screen where the audience is so far away, they're off screen. So he's thinking, uh, I can't believe how much I'm getting paid for this. And the person's whispering, do you think he's even getting paid for this? <laughs> and, I, and I think that encapsulates the corporate experience because you're, I, I did one the other day. I struggled bad and they're, they're, they're listening to this. I don't want you to know I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Adam would like you to know that he hates you and he is normally a very good comedian. <laughs> well, listen to this. They booked me for two and it went so badly, they pulled the other one. <laughs> that was my food for 2024. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. But I got the phone call the next day for the agent. It went, right, let's see your perspective. You know, kind of, okay. <laughs> Why do you think it went badly? And of course, you list all your reasons why. You know, we did have a. It was an award ceremony. Like, well, they didn't do a rehearsal, so I didn't know when the sound mm-hmm. cues were coming in. And da da da. And you know, I, actually, my 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 co-host. This is this is how badly organised it was. My co-host was a, a very well-known celebrity. They um, uh-huh. were going to come on a page and a half. In, so I did ten minutes of stand-up. Then I did a, a page and a half of monologue about the event and the industry and everything. And then a page and a half in, I went, anyway, it's time to start the awards. Please welcome my co-host, da-da-da-da. Crowd go mad. He walks on stage, and we do the thing together. So I went from my stand-up to the podium, read the first sentence of a page and a half, and he heckled me from the side. Adam, you forgot to bring me on, right? Now I look like an idiot, right? So I bring him on, and then I go, anyway, I've, I've got to read this first. I read the page and a half, right? <laughs> And at the end of the page and a half, I went and read, anyway, it's time for the start of the awards. Please welcome my host, right? And so I, I rubbed his nose in it that I had messed up, right? And, that, if, you know, yeah. people laugh, but he looks at me and went, okay, fair enough. Like, but the question is, why didn't the organizers tell him Adam's doing a monologue before he starts? It's a, this is why we have rehearsals, right? This is why, you know, every single thing we're saying to each other now has been meticulously rehearsed an hour before the show. And that's a boom mic moment, by the way. It was a joke. But the, the point is that, that um, so, yeah, uh, corporates are hard. And I, I, how do we get onto corporates? Uh, can I, well, uh, before we move off them, because uh, yeah. I just want to tell you a story that you'll enjoy, just based on that story that you just shared with me, of a corporate okay. gig that went wrong for a completely different reason. Again, just one of those things that could have been prevented by somebody having a rehearsal and sort of running through how the show might have gone with the people who are actually involved in the show. So they did a full rehearsal. This is thousands of people in a big convention centre that has been, you know, transformed into a ballroom with, you know, tables and, you know, it's like a, you know, $5,000 a you know, seat sort of like do with like the 
cream of corporate speakers from like around the nation and around the world, you know. So I'm doing stand-up, but it's hosted by a big news, like, you know, presenter TV personality. Some of the speeches are by business leaders. Some are by, you know, inspirational Australians who have achieved different things. So mine is just part of a long day of like all these presentations from a huge range of people, right? I'm just meant to be the comic relief after some sort of more inspirational or businessy speeches in this environment. The speaker who was on before me was a guy who uh, was in a wheelchair, did one of the best presentations you've ever seen in your entire life about how he uh, climbed Mount Everest. It really was literally $5,000 a chair. Yeah, so, well, I mean, I think his yeah. chair might have even been a little more than $5,000. And here's what I will tell you about this event is he was amazing. Told this story of climbing Everest, like it's this heroic story of like everything you can achieve, how you don't let life set you back. It is incredible. At the end, he gets a standing ovation, which I would argue bad taste to a guy in a wheelchair. Yeah. But like... <laughs> I feel like that's the one time. Stay in your seats, guy. You know that's just rubbing it in. But anyway, that was the time he started crying. He did so well. Like honestly, brilliant. Everybody just loved it. The newsreader MC has decided now in this giant arena that they've converted into a ballroom. The stage is just a, it's not a regular stage. It is a stage that they've put in and elevated for this, you know, because it's in a convention hall, not in a proper venue. So like it's a purpose-built stage for the event. And uh, that means it does not come with ramps. Uh, So uh, the newsreader who is hosting the day decides to write off the back of the momentum of the standing ovation and decides that's probably as good a point as any to just roll through and say, and now please welcome to the stage, uh, Will Anderson, uh, which in itself probably would have been hard to follow immediately. But I think as a professional, I would have dealt with it in a very self-deprecating way about what had happened, made the transition, got into my job, and I think I would have been fine. I think this gig would have gone absolutely fine if not for the sight during the first five minutes of my gig of this hero having to wheel himself over to a like a, like a lift that they had attached to the side of the stage that lowered itself so slowly, like the slowest, safest lift you've ever, like it was only probably three metres, but it took five minutes for it to just be lowered down slowly in the back of me trying to get my comedy going. But that's not that's not enough because also that obviously not turned off the safety um, light or the safety siren. So it was also flashing and beeping to alert people that it was lowering him down. And of course you can't interact with the, you can't point out the hero who's, you know, going through Cause he's embarrassed by the situation as well. Right. He doesn't want to be there in that vulnerable situation as I'm trying to do what I'm doing. But anyway, just a rehearsal, a rehearsal would have prevented that. An interval. <laughs> The thing is, I, I, you yeah, know, the reason I'm true. laughing because we've all yeah, been in that's... horrible situations. That is <coughs> awful, awful. And the thing is, you can't even like, you can't even say like at a corporate event, a line that might be funny in a club is not funny in a corporate, right? There are, the rules change. Like my thought, my, my mind going, what would I say? If you went, look at him, climb Everest, can't get off a stage, right? They'd hate you for that. 
they'd hate you for that. But because my point is, it was yeah, but it's yeah. a classic example. No, I no, I agree with you. And I'm just going to tell you something I think well, you'll enjoy. When I tell that story, which I've told as a funny story, my punchline is literally what you just said, a thing I absolutely did not say on the day and have only added into that story later for the comedy of the story because, of course, on the day, that never would have worked. It would not have worked. And the the thing is, like, we've all been at a corporate situation where we've said something, we've drawn attention to, you know, something like that, and the crowd looking like, you're just an idiot. Why do you disrespect him? We go, no, no, no. I'm a comedian trying to <laughs> do something. And it's, you know, there's not, you know, there, there's a, a comedian called Tanya Lee Davis, who, who's a little person. And um, sometime that Rob Rouse followed her, comedian, and he walked around the stage as a giant. And the audience in the comedy club found that funny because he's not, he's not making fun of her. He's a He's addressing an elephant in the room, and some people go, "Yeah, but that is making fun of her." Yeah, but they've been backstage hanging out, and you've got this license as a commander. You can say the wrong thing if it's done with love. If you also say, "God, she was tiny, wasn't she?" God, totally ridiculous. That's obviously hugely disrespectful, and to a corporate audience, it's the same thing as saying, "I'm a giant." Why would you? That's weird. You know. Also, when people are surrounded by uh, their workmates that they're not close friends with or clients or you know people within you've got the whole bottled water industry in one room they're not going to go ah you did look like a giant because they're going to go their judgment they're they don't want to be seen laughing at something that they'll be judged for laughing at so they're sitting there well i saw one have you ever a comedian called bobby mayer a canadian comedian no he's, he's a great comedian okay, he's fantastic he's a comics comic he's great and he's really edgy the first time i saw him was at a school fundraiser so these are parents that see their, each other outside the school gates year in, year out. They've got to have an image. This is the thing, isn't it? They've presented themselves as someone who wouldn't laugh at the wrong thing because then they might, if they laugh, someone else doesn't laugh, then they'll go, oh, you like you laugh at disabled people. You're not a very good parent. Now my kids can't play with your kids. There's all sorts of politics going on and self-image. And he was so edgy and unapologetically edgy and it was bubbling under. They were like, we can't laugh at this. And he just kept believing what he did. And there was a moment where they just burst as one and they all howled. He just pushed and pushed and pushed. He didn't get less edgy. He didn't go, I'll give them what they want. He pushed and pushed and pushed. And it was so beautiful that they as one went, we can't pretend we don't like this anymore. It was beautiful. They just gave him bang. And um, he got heckled by the secretary, the, the deputy headmistress. She had that kind of on hairdo it. She probably spends half an hour every morning, five days a week for the last 20 years in that job. She's got that kind of shoulders back, bust out kind of, you know, overly deliberately good posture. She, she was old school and her hair, not her hair out of place. And she heckled him and he dealt with it, got the laughs and then he paused. And he went, nice hair lady, right? And these 200 parents screamed because that was four years or maybe seven years with two or three different children of hating this woman's haircut, right? And it was beautiful because it, they got a chance to laugh at her hair. And um, that laugh wasn't just like in a comedy club, yeah, nice hair lady, haha. <laughs> yeah, she does, she does have rubbish hair. This was years of hating this woman's haircut. Boom, like that. So he transformed an audience from judgmental to just gave in, just gave in. So, but, but I don't think in a corporate environment it's quite the same because they're doing business with the people next to them. You know, you, I remember doing a, a camera uh, awards thing 
And there was one Japanese guy in the audience. And I chat into the front row and I'm not going to, I'm not going to miss someone out because they're the only non-white person in the room. I'm talking to the front row. Like, like a child talks to people, they talk to everybody. As in, you know, they're not seeing the phrase, I don't see colours, I can't stand that phrase, but I'm not seeing anyone as different. They're just people in a room. So I talk to the Japanese guy, the room freezes. He's the head of Nikon. He's the CEO of Nikon. Well, my, I, my gig never recovered from that because the whole room went, please don't insult the guy that's flown from Japan, who the CEO of Nikon cameras. And so if there's any young comedians listening, when you're doing a corporate for the camera industry and there's only one Asian guy, <laughs> best to leave him alone. There's a lesson. I hope that helps. There, there is actually one great uh, lesson that is a little off this uh, for you in your corporate uh, tips that you have at the back of the book. There's a great checklist for people to use uh, that you provide that they could talk to a corporate employer about the various things on the checklist. But one of them that I loved that you noted was who's the cockiest person in the workplace? Like, and this is about power dynamics, right? This is what you're talking about generally at the moment is like, you know, I did a corporate gig recently and it's like similar to the Buffon hair story where the CEO of the company or the chairman of the board or whatever is an older guy who's off on a honeymoon on a third, fourth, fifth or sixth marriage, you know, sort of thing. And he wasn't there and just said a video from his honeymoon. And the amount of mileage I got out of being able to make fun of that, him, because that's what they all wanted to be able to do, and but they couldn't and he wasn't there. So it was a per that was the perfect arrangement, right. right? But what you're doing when you say to them who's the cockiest person in the workplace, why why ask for that person? Like, I mean, I've read the book, I know what you're but tell the people who are listening, why why ask for the cockiest person? So, okay, so first of all, uh, the reason that's a bonus chapter at the back, after the thank yous, after the afterthoughts, is because it's not the same as the rest of the book. The rest of the book is theories and methods, writing, the 17 chapters on writing, meticulously thought out methods about meticulously thought out actions, the, you know, theories about actions. But the corporate chapter is just a little guide of things I've learned the hard way about corporate entertainment. Now, there are 12 questions to ask, and I, I believe they can profoundly change your experience in a tough room. The 13th question is not on that list because it's my personal one. I'm not asking people to ask that one. I say, come up with your own ones. The reason I ask who the cockiest person in the room is, a cocky person's more likely to stand out because they're going to do something like swagger to the bar rather than crouch down so they can't be seen. So if you turn around to the cockiest person in the room, not knowing who he is, let's say this, I know you can get to, they can get him to point you out. I mean, that would actually, I've just improved my own book. Point to the cockiest person. But the point is, <laughs> I really need a second edition of this book. Um, <laughs> the point is, if you get someone's name and that person heckles you or does something, you know, when you go to the bar, I mean, most people in a, in a small room wouldn't go to the bar because they, they know the comedian can see them walking off, so they sit there and wait till you're finished. But when someone swaggers to the bar to say, look, I don't care if I can be seen, I'm swaggering, um, and you say to that person, hey, what's your name? And they say their name. And you've been told they're the cockiest person in the room. And I say to that person, Steve, is it Steve Johnson? He goes, yeah. How do you know? I go, because oh, I asked your boss who the biggest prick was, and she said you. There's no way 
that that's not going to be a brutal... But I mean, that's brutal. Because at that moment, everyone laughs and go, well, the boss was right, he is. He knows I can't have fluked. I can't remember 69 names. So the point is, if you said, who's the most successful person in the room, it's very unlikely that person's going to do something that shows they're successful. They're going to drink their tea with a little finger in the air. Well, I mean, what? So my point is, cockiness will sh- will show up, and therefore you've got a grenade in your pocket in case that happens. And, and it is like a bomb went off in the room when when that's happened in the past, because that is a character assassination of someone who deserves a character assassination. If you went, who's who's the highest paid person in the room, and then you get heckled by a guy and you go. What's your name? Mark. Mark Smith, yeah. Apparently you're really rich. Doesn't work, does it? <laughs> and the the thing is also you've safety proofed it, right? That's why I think it's such a like beautiful question because you've done everything that you've said, but also everyone in the room, if you're going to make fun of anybody, the safest person to make fun of is the person that they've agreed is the person who can take it best. That's essentially what you've asked, like who can take the joke best in a way, or at least who can be the butt of the joke and recover from it. It's not going to end up being something that haunts them for the rest of their life. Yes, by being by being cocky, he's more like, or, or she, but let's be honest, it's normally a bloke who's the cocky. Very, very rarely the cockiest person in the company is a woman, right? It's, it's, a, it's a very bloke thing to... You know, women don't swagger. I don't think I've ever seen a woman swagger to the bar. You know, but men are. You know, men compete for attention more, and that's um, a, a flaw in us, I, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I think they can take it. But most importantly, this isn't about me picking someone who can take it. This is about me picking someone who deserves it. Oh, yeah. I just think it's both. Like, I just think this is how good this question is that it gives you both. It gives you the person who deserves it. It gives you protection from the person who's most likely to cause an issue. But also, if you do need to do something, it's a safe kill in the room because everybody's on your side because they know the cockiest person. They don't suddenly have, oh, hang on, he's the guy from Nikon that we've flown in specially for this event, you know. 100%. 100%. They, 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 I, I'm never going to be... The audience is never going to turn on me for that. If you said who's the shyest person in the room, and then you went, what's your yeah. name? Mark? Mark what? Mark Johnson? Ah, come up and say a few words about yourself. I heard you're really shy. And you're a bully. Yeah. So, you know, yes. Yeah, so, but the, the, the thing is with that one, I, I kind of put it as a 13th question. And I said, you know, come up with your own ones, which is a very polite way of saying, do not use my technique. Um, but, <laughs> it's almost it's almost like my material isn't it i don't really i don't really mind if you know, people listen to that they want to they want to do it but it's it's very effective the thing is with the corporate is just by being there you're swimming against the tide not always sometimes they're lovely and they're excited you can always tell by the applause when you walk on how well it's going to go you get that kind of yeah you know i've had people with their backs to me the whole 30 minutes i'm on stage in the front row i mean that's rude you're you're, you're treating me like I'm a big issue seller and you don't want one. And, you know, I'm standing there in a suit. I've flown to Lisbon. And you, you're, you, I've got on a plane and you can't turn your seat around. So that kind of uh, rudeness uh, is means you're against the tide because they don't want you to be there. Or they don't care if you're there. So therefore, a joke about the company is infinitely better than a joke about your day. If I go, so please welcome Adam Bloom. Good evening. I went fishing the other day. Why is this stranger talking about a fishing rod? Why? Do you know I, mean? I, I don't care. 
Why well, don't care? You walk on stage and go, so the bottle, Evian, where's Evian? But where's Perrier? Bang. And then you've got a routine you've created about a, a fight between Perrier and Evian or whatever, a Run DMC video and the bottle water and the fizzy versus the still. And you create this story. They're like, this is great. And the, 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 the one important thing that happens is even if it's not that funny, they know you've made an effort. This is this is how good this book is, by the way. We've been talking for forty minutes, and we've literally talked about the bonus chapter that isn't even really technically in the book. So let's let's circle back a little and actually talk about the the you know the real meat of the book. I want to start with, if I could, just something that relates a lot to the topic of this conversation as well, and this podcast, and you know what I like to talk about. It was something that you referenced that I really responded to because I think about it all the time when it comes to comedy, which is flow. And you particularly seem to be like me. In fact, you referenced Run DMC, which was the first cassette tape I ever had, you know, when I was a kid. And so I like, you know, felt, you know, perhaps, you know, we had some similar influences there, but talk to me and talk to the audience about, what the idea of flow is and what it means to you and what it means like to comedy through your eyes. So I grew up in jazz clubs. My dad, who sadly died last year, which is actually part of the reason I wrote the book as well. I needed to put my focus on something else. Rappers always talk about flow. And if you ask, interview Jay-Z about why he likes Biggie Smalls so much, he'll mention storytelling, but they'll talk about flow. And the flow is the music of language. And, you know, um, Shakespeare's all these iambic pentameters and all these things, you know, they exist in, in poetry, they exist in plays. And when a comedian has good flow, Mitch Hedberg had a unique flow. He didn't just have good flow, he had his unique flow. You know, I used to do drugs. I still do drugs, but I used to too. That is incredible flow. And he's, he's got, a, 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 there's, when a, when a rapper has a, a, a collection of sounds together that sound amazing. That is not a coincidence. They have meticulously put their words together so there's a, 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 a rhythm and it hits on the syllables and assonance. Eminem doesn't actually rhyme. He, he does assonance, whereas it's actually the vowel sounds that are sounding the same. I, he goes, I tried to grow it back again. It was an accident. Well, back again and accident don't rhyme at all. But he makes it sound like it rhymes, right? I, I remember this line, I tried to go back again, it was an accident. Had his, something fans chopped again. Um, oh, my God. It, Amsterdam, it rhymed with Amsterdam. So back again, accident, Amsterdam, do not rhyme. But when he says that they do, this is a beautiful thing. But I'm going off the point now because we're going into assonance. But if a rapper can tell a four-minute story where the last three syllables of every line on an entire verse, rhyme with each other. Can't comedians put a little bit more thought into the rhythm of their, their sentences? They don't have to rhyme, of course. In fact, it'd be weird if they did rhyme, but a, a great comedian has flow even in the, in the setup. So a lot of comedians think maybe the last three syllables of a, of a punchline have to sound nice. Let's say they end on a clip sound, they end on a bang, and a cat, and a step, that, but they, my sounds are very clipped. Now, yours might not, but you might have softer sounds, but there'll be a a, a consistency to those soft sounds. So I, I saw Neil Hamburger, who's my favorite comedian. He he's playing the part of a bad comedian, and he had a line when he, he deliberately bad flow, 
And he said, why, is, why does Colonel Sanders keep his 11 herbs and sizes a secret? Because he's ashamed of them. And this, and he's deliberately giving me bad flow. Because if, if, if you'd written that joke, you'd say, because he's thoroughly ashamed, right? And thoroughly ashamed. It's got no, thoroughly ashamed, right? And him going, he's ashamed of them. Um, by hanging on that sound then, he's stopping us laughing at the joke. And that is the joke. He's doing bad cadence. So when a, a comedian has great flow, I mean, the Mitch Hedberg line, I used to do drugs. I still do drugs, but I used to do two. Used to two. And he, he caresses the second two. There's two words in a row that mean the uh, same sound, but different spellings and different meanings. But if he'd said, I used to do drugs, I still do drugs, but I used to as well. It's half the joke. S same, uh, same point, half the joke. Because... Those sounds on a punchline, they can be funny to listen to. And I, I've, I've got a punchline. It could be because he swapped it for a yo-yo. Now, swapped it, swapped it for a yo-yo. It, it's, it's swapped it, yo-yo. They're such different sound. De La Soul, one of my favorite rap groups of all time, they had an album called Mosaic Thump. Uh, isn't that a lovely sound? Mosaic Thump. And then you've got the juxtaposition because not – Mosaic, you think if uh, you know going on a school trip to, you know, well, Australia doesn't have quite the history we have. But the, the point is that uh, <laughs> well, we have a very long history, a very yeah, yeah. Very let's long. not go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we yeah we can we can look at historical buildings without feeling guilty. Anyway, yeah. the point is that <clears throat> as we move on, <clears throat> so the the uh, a mosaic, you know, going these Roman bars and these little tiny tiles to make up a picture. And you do a rubbing of or brass rubbing with a bit of paper and a pencil, <clears throat> but a thump—that's an onomatopoeia, isn't it? Thump, mosaic thump. I don't know what the album means. They're very intelligent. They're very deep thinkers. <clears throat> I'm no doubt that means something. But comedians often only think about the flow of the last few words of a punchline. So they'll be saying, "I, I walked into the shop the other day, and there's a guy who did this and did a nice sound on a punchline. Why can't there be nice sounds all the way?" You know, <clears throat> comedy can be pleasurable when it's not funny. You know, you can enjoy the journey to the punchline because they're nice, rich sounds. Of course, mental imagery, we, we you know, it, there can be a setup that's got beautiful sounds, strong mental imagery, no comedy, and then the punchline comes. Isn't it nice that it's decorated all the way through rather than just a bit, you know, I, I, I can't stand long setups with no strong mental images or nice sounds. A, a great comedian is making nice sounds all the way through their set, and that's flow. And I, 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 you, at the back of a room, you'll hear a comedian go, uh, great punchline or great act out. You very rarely hear good flow. And when I once heard good flow, it was a hip-hop fan that says, Jared Christmas, who loved his, um, who's, who's from New Zealand, who I met in Melbourne in 2000. But So I think flow is probably the least used, beautiful thing that a comedian can do. I, I really responded to that. I, I loved the, the examples that you use, the way you talked about everything from rap to Dr. Seuss. Like it's, it's very interesting. Do you hear, because obviously the book, you're writing things down, you're trying to put it in language that people can understand and, you know, that maybe they could replicate or, you know, use in their own practice. That's part of, you know, the way that the book is constructed. But when you're hearing the music of your jokes, like, is this more, would you consider yourself to be more someone who 
to use that musical analogy, is great at reading sheet music and bringing that to life? Or are you a person who's hearing the music of the joke in your head and then being able to sort of transcribe that and play with that? Like, does it appear musically in your brain immediately and then you, you know, play with it technically or does it start technically and then you are able to bring that music to life? That's a great question. Um, first, I think of how I'm going to communicate the idea I've had. Then when I say it, I realized that certain sounds don't sit well together. I speak very fast on stage, as you know. I've also got a slight speech impediment. So I will struggle with certain sounds. So I will rephrase a joke so that I can get my mouth around the sounds to give myself less of a journey because I don't want to stutter or stumble on a punchline. So when my mouth struggles from one sound to another, <clears throat> I reword it. Now, here's the thing. If you speak slowly, you don't have that problem. But shouldn't those hard sounds that clash with each other that don't sound nice be replaced just for the music of the, the material? Trevor Cook's one of my favorite comedians from, from Sydney. He's over here. Great comedian. He's almost falling asleep on stage. He's so lethargic. But they're still beautiful sounds. And I, I'm forced to create nice sounds because I struggle to say the hard ones. But my main agenda is for it to be pleasurable. So the answer to your question is, I would probably add the musical sounds later on because I think if you're in, when you have an idea, I got this idea about Will and the, his microphone and his hair and da da da. And if he had a grey microphone, they would look like him. He's got a black t-shirt on right now, so he's a grey right. But I would just say the idea. Then I'd go, hmm, microphone, no mic. You, you look like a mic. And I don't mean your name. You look like a mic. And I don't mean your name. Now, without thinking about it, I just had the same amount of rips. You look like a mic. And I don't mean your name. There's one syllable extra in the second one, right? So I think that I'm able to process those things sometimes first time. But if I don't, I'll ask myself why that didn't flow. And I realized we... We could, here we go. You look like a microphone, and I don't mean your name. Oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> There's no name microphone. <laughs> <laughs> now we need to get the name microphone in the common vernacular of people's nicknames. Yeah, and I've only can, got till this can, comes out can, to do it. <laughs> I was going to say, you can you can backdate your jokes by just getting, you know what? That wasn't a flaw in the comedy. You just haven't caught up to it. It's just a little before it's time. So, Adam, I'm interested in the overall philosophy of like when you sit down to write a book like this by an established comedian and a person who's written with alongside in collaboration with some huge names, like, but for a whole range of projects and a whole range of different voices and personas for people. Like, I think the reason that a book like this probably doesn't exist beforehand is that anyone who might have thought of writing it has probably thought, oh, am I going to give away all my secrets, you know, all my IP, you know, what I've learned over my journey, like maybe I shouldn't share that. Or the other thing might be, who am I to be giving, you know, people who are doing comedy advice on their on their comedy? Did you wrestle with either of those things or other questions before you decided that you were going to do this? Well, Harry Hill, who's a huge star in England, and, and the reason I started doing the stand-up, I saw him live and that was it. I was doing it three weeks later because he inspired me so much. I actually had a drink with him the other day and he said, 
I've read some of your book, and if a magician wrote this, they'd be kicked out of the magic circle, which I think is quite a good point, right? Basically, you're giving away techniques. Now, my argument for that is I'm not writing any jokes in that book. I'm giving you the tools to write better jokes. Doesn't everyone have the right to be guided in a good direction? So I've written for, well, I've written for about 60 people. On the book cover, it says 50, but since the book's come out, I've done a writing job a week. Globally, it's beautiful. Zoom makes the world tiny, right? So um, the reason I feel I can write it, what gives him the right to write this book? How do you answer that without sounding cocky? No, I mean, this is a safe space for you to sound as cocky as you want. I asked you the question because I wanted to hear what your actual answer was, you know, to the question. Before this, uh, we set this up, did you ask your producer, who's the cockiest person in the room? And he said, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're number two, Will, just for the record. So, okay, because I've written for so many people, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours. I mean, God, maybe a thousand hours, I don't know, sitting down in, in writing meetings. If I have to explain to someone why I do something, as you say, instinctively, I've got to go deep inside my head and say, why do I do that? And then suddenly, a, a formula comes out, like an E equals MC squared moment, like the seesaw theory about. about uh, when a punchline has a pause in the middle, there should be more words on one half of the pause than the other. And I had to articulate that when someone said, why did you take those words out of the punchline? I said, well, listen. And then I realized, my mum taught me this as a kid, actually. I'm Adam Bloom. You're Will Anderson. They're both seesaws. I'm 2-1. You're 1-3. doesn't matter which side of the pause is, more syllables, as long as it's one. So Stephen King, if you go um, William Anderson, that's 3-3. That doesn't flow as much. Will Anderson, Adam Bloom, William Anderson. It's it's, it's a seesaw. So if there's more syllables on one side of the pause than the other, it's far more likely to flow. And I kind of yet to be had this disproved. But of course, there are exceptions to every rule. But when a punchline doesn't sound right, I zoom in on it and go, yep, it's missing a seesaw. And I've never seen it fail. I've never seen a punchline. If a punchline works and it doesn't have a seesaw, then that's the exception that proves the rule. However, when a punchline doesn't work and there's something wrong with it, I zoom in, look at the syllable count and go, ah, it's missing a seesaw. And you might go, it's comedy about maths. No, it's it's about chords. And and I've worked up some new chords. Or I've worked out some chords. Um, and, and I don't think I've worked out any new chords, actually. I, I've worked out some of the chords. And um, it, it, as I was writing the book, I probably came out with 20%, 10% of that book was stuff that occurred to me as I was writing, which is great, because I'm going, bookending is when there's a repeated word on the final word of a, a punchline, where that first word has to be for the rhythm to sound right. Because if you repeat a word on a punchline in the wrong place, as in the first word, if you've got the word Steve and it ends on Steve, if the first Steve is in the wrong place, that last Steve won't land well because you're going, we've already heard that word. Like punchlines are surprises. So if the last word of a punchline is a surprise too, that's great. In the shop, right? Now, if you've got the word shop earlier in that punchline, it, if it's in the wrong place, it won't sound right. And I, I got four bullet points. To, to say what a book ending has to be. And again, I, I create the phrase book ending because we all know repetition of words can be very dangerous. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So when you talk about like, you know, your process of 20% of it perhaps being, you know, things that occurred to you as you were writing about the other things, how did you decide what to write about? Because, of course, when you sit down to write a book about comedy and how to do comedy or like how to write comedy or like, but it's more, there's performance, there's writing, there's all sorts of things in it. But, of course, in a way there also could have been a hundred other things in it, you know, that might have been of equal importance in other people's minds. So how did you decide what you thought, this is what I need to say? These are the things that I think about comedy and this is what I'm going to limit it to. That is, that's a very good question. So there's 20, it's a hundred thousand word book and there's 20,000 words that didn't make the edit. And the reason I know that was if I ever took something out, I never deleted it. I took it aside because you never know when you might find it, a place for it to go later on. If something felt like I was going too far down a you know a, a, a corridor in my mind, I'd email it immediately to my eighty-year-old mum who has never done stand-up and has no interest in doing stand-up and doesn't watch much stand-up. I, I, I send her a clip. Her favorite comedian is George Carlin. I'm so proud. I, I got into George Carlin. What a great favorite for a mum to have. Um, but and she'd read it. And I'd go, did that all make sense? And she'd go, yeah. I'd go, was it boring? And she'd go, no. Once she went, you lost me towards the end, and I rewrote it. I think another time she said, yeah, that got a bit too too much, and I ch- chopped the last bit out. So if, if a non-comedian can follow every word of that book and still find it interesting, imagine how interesting it will be for someone who's going to benefit from it. There were bits when I thought, okay, here's my my philosophy on it. If something was more laborious than beneficial, it was out. Ah, interesting. The boring to worth learning. If something's a bit boring, but the end thing is great, I'll go stay with me. This is all gonna, it's all gonna make sense in a minute, or it's all gonna come to life in a minute. The three, the first three chapters all linked together, and then I give an example towards the end, and I go, now this is when I I say, bear with me, and then later on I go, this is the moment it comes to life, and then suddenly. All the theories with one example of a great joke from someone else with a couple of syllables added in the middle, it all falls apart. The the scaffolding just crumbles. And that's like, this is worth waiting for. But if something I go, well, that's more boring than it is beneficial, you're going to gain this much from it, but you're going to have to get bored this much. I go, no, it's out. I, I don't want a book to bore people. I don't read many books, but when I've read factual books, the chapter where I've got lost is when I put the book down and never pick it up again. I don't go on to the next chapter. I've, it's a journey. If I miss out a chapter, I haven't read the book, and I've stopped, and I've never picked up. And it breaks my heart to think someone would put my book down and not finish it. The fact you've read the bonus chapters, probably a good sign, unless that's all you read, Will. What is it, Will? Did you turn to page? Come on, I've, I've, I've asked you a lot of questions across many parts of this book so far. So, <laughs> I, I, I'll even I'll even do a little quiz at the end. It's fine. No, I mean, adorable. adorable. One of the things that I loved about it was it's written in that style. You talked about the idea of self-publishing at the start, and of course, this is exactly what self-publishing is meant to be for because. There's no point putting this out widespread. It's for a niche audience who needs to find this and they just need a place that they can find it. But I also actually would argue in a broader conversation that it's not just for people who do comedy or want to do comedy. I think that people who have an interest in comedy, like you know, people who want to understand comedy more, who just in the same way as you might not want to go and 
play in the band, but you might want to understand music more to get more out of what you're viewing. There's, it's written in a way where you are always speaking to, it feels like you, you are speaking to the person reading the book through the page. It isn't like a how-to manual where it has a manual feel. It feels like Adam Bloom, the experienced comedian, is telling you a bunch of things and sometimes you'll say, this will come back later or this will be important later or remember before when I told you about that thing? And it's rare in a, in one of those sort of books that they say, hey, remember before in Chapter 3 when we told you about blah, blah, blah. They just assume you read Chapter 3 and that you're up to speed and that you don't need to be reminded about things. <laughs> and uh-huh. you know, I think, I think that's one of the great appeals of the book, I think, is that it does feel that it is your, you personally sort of guiding the people reading the book through your thought process around, you know, the way comedy is constructed. Yeah, I, I, there's no – the, if anyone's listening to this thing you're writing a book, what's really exciting is you're, you find the style of the book while you're writing the book. I didn't have a plan to how I was going to sound. Then you realise, for example, I would never say, so – if you're a new comedian, do this. If you're an established comedian, do this. If Because that's, I'm talking as the text to lots of people. It's always me and you. So I might say, do this, and in brackets, unless it's, this is your first gig, but it's always you. So I would, I would never talk to the reader like they're potentially seven different people because that's not a relationship. So it's always one-on-one. It's me, an ex of mine read it and said it felt like she was down the pub with me. And that's the, the, kind of the highest compliment, really. The, the most exciting thing about writing that book was, well, the most exciting thing was when I realized I'd nailed a point and the, my knowledge grew as I was writing the point and I felt like a, a lawyer in court going, here's the evidence, this is why, this is that, and therefore that's why that person's guilty. Those moments were unbelievable because you go, I, I can't see anyone not absorbing this and agreeing or, or learning from it if they didn't already know it. But the second most exciting thing was finding the voice of the book while writing the book. And if anyone's thinking of writing a book, self-publishing, no one tells you to do anything. I designed the cover. A, a, a cover designer put a cherry on the top, but which was worth every penny. In fact, if I was rich, I'd pay her three times over because she put a chair on the top that just made it shine. But nonetheless, I designed the cover. I wrote it. No one said, take that chapter out. No one said, I don't like the cover. It, the, the freedom, because as comedians, we have 100% freedom, right? You write the jokes, you tell the jokes, you move how you want to, you wear what you want to wear. It's all you. And, you know, with a film, you write a film, you've probably got very little saying how, it, you know, someone else, producer, goes, nope, that scene's gone. But, but that's important. That scene, that scene sets up that. Otherwise, they won't cry at that scene because they need to know about that happening. Well, we don't like it. And before you know it, you've got a bad film because the people you're working with whose money it is, let's say, don't like the things you think are important. Stand-ups don't have that. It's just you and a microphone. What a wonderful, wonderful... Woody Allen said the best anything gets is an idea. So therefore, it's your job to water it down as little as possible between the idea and the end product. And when you watch an incredible film, you go, wow, there's a team of 300 people and the end product was beautiful. What an incredible thing with the makeup and the costume and the set and the, and the location and the actors, the casting and everything and the final product. You think about your favorite film, how beautiful that end product is. That is a colossal job to make sure the creator ended up having all those things in sync together. Now, 
in sync together. There's a tautology. Um, but the thing is, with with uh, self-publishing, that's the equivalent of doing stand-up. There's no one else gets in the way. A proofreader checks for commas and goes, oh, that needs a comma there. You're going to go, oh, you've ruined the book. I don't like that comma. You know, th- th- nobody, nobody had any chance of changing what I created. So therefore, if the end product's bad, it's my fault. If the end product's good, it's my achievement. And this isn't uh, ego-related. This is a fear of having other people water down your product. And I, but, you know, I spoke to two publishers, and one of them said, we get the final say of the cover design. Well, I was out. That was it. I'm out. I'm already out. You can't choose what haircut my baby has. I'm interested in, uh, you know, wanting to tell your own story in your own way. And then the nature of, you know, compromise, which is what you're talking about, this idea that, you know, so how has that been for you in relationship to like your career? Like, have you been a person who like has weighed in one hand, you know, that potential to be just like, you know, I want to be me and tell my stories in my own way and whatever it is. Like, have you been asked to compromise for for jobs? I mean, I imagine when you're writing for someone else, like you would constantly have to make compromises to what your authentic, you know, what the, what Adam Bloom, the comedian, would, you know, necessarily say might not be right for somebody that you're collaborating with in, you know, or writing for specifically in some other context. So, you know, how do you balance all that? How do you deal with that? What do you think of that? Well, there, there's a phrase I don't know exists in Australia. Um, kill your darlings. Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, yeah. And it might be lose your darlings, as some people say. Or um, the idea that you know you've got this wonderful idea, and someone says, "Well, we don't want to use that." And you're like, "It's brilliant! It's brilliant!" But just kill your darlings. You have to be strong enough to let something go that's brilliant, and. With stand-up, writing a book doesn't happen, but with writing for somebody else, it will happen. So two days ago, I did a writing job for somebody, and they needed a, a, a rewording of a punchline, and I took it in a whole new direction, and I, and I laughed, which is very rare to make yourself laugh. As you know, we very rarely laugh at our own ideas when we have them. When you do, that's a good sign, right? You've actually shot your own body. With a, with, you've come out your brain, gone back in your brain, and you've laughed. That's a very rare feeling, I think. And, um, and they went, I don't like it. And I begged them. To keep it in, but please, because it's never going to see it's never going to see the light of day unless they agree, right? You've handed them this wonderful thing. Go, there's fish. Now go and swim. They're like, nope, nope, going to chop its head off, not even eat it. And they eventually went. Actually, I, yeah, I like it. And I was like, yay, because I was I would have been mortified if they didn't use it because I can't use it. It's at the end of their bit. Yeah. So when someone says that, okay, here, here's here's the best example. Somebody I write for got an Oscar nomination and a BAFTA nomination for a film they wrote, and I wrote the speech acceptance speeches. Now, I put my heart into those speeches, and when they didn't win, and you can listen to the Oscars, there's a a, a delayed feed of, of the results, like maybe five minutes later. So I'm online watching the names of the winners, and when they didn't win, obviously I was sad for them because I consider them a friend, I was crushed for me. That speech will never, ever, ever get read out. And I told someone about this. They went, did you get paid well? I went, yeah. What's your problem? Well, that was a non-comedian speaking because you know and I know that the money is secondary. 
Of course, we like more money. Very few people in the world wouldn't like to make more money. But it was about the speech. I'd rather, here's the thing, I'd rather get paid a tenth of the fee. And it, well, if they said to me, right, there's, there's two fees, right? There's the fee that it might not get heard. And there's the fee that if it don't, we don't win, we're going to have a big party and we're going to read the speech out, right? I'd go for the smaller fee because I want to hear it exist. I never got to hear two speeches, two completely different speeches. One's English and one's in the States. Completely different speeches. And, and it's heartbreaking. So I hope this doesn't sound like a humble brag because obviously when you, not every day you write a, an Oscar exception speech for somebody. But I, I was devastated. I ne- it, it, it never got to live. And when, when a comedian says, no, I'm not using it, there's one guy I write for who's very wealthy. And I said, did you um, try that routine out? That we went, no, I didn't get around to it. I'm like, you're so wealthy, you can chuck loads of money at me. But you know that rich kid who's got a, you got the action man, he's got the action man and the tank and the, you know, city. And his whole bedroom's an action man city. And he doesn't play with it. And you're like, if I had that toy, I'd live and breathe that toy. And you're just throwing it on the floor. Did you have Big Track, the, ele- the little tank that you would program? <laughs> it had a trailer to it. It was a Big Track. It was a little, a little tank where you'd program it, go forward 10, and it would go and deliver a, 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 an apple to your dad in the next room because you'd plot it out. In fact, you had to measure whether... You, you could have given the, the dad the apple while you were measuring the distance to the sofa, but you didn't. Right? But Big Track had a trailer. The rich kids had the trailer, and the trailer would tip up to, to knock the apple onto the floor. And on the advert, it was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, if only I had a, 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 a machine that could deliver my dad an apple... And, and the rich kids had the trailer too. So when you're writing for somebody who's very wealthy and they don't try out the material because they couldn't be bothered, you're like, that was a day out of my life writing that material. And you go, well, you got paid. It's, the money's the secondary bit. The most important bit is seeing this stuff. So when you write for somebody else, it can be frustrating when they don't do it. Or you watch them do it and they changed it or they missed out the best, best, best bit. They go, yeah, I didn't like that bit. Oh, right, that was the... It, you know, crescendoed on this lovely bit. Yeah, I didn't like that bit, and that—that's them killing your darlings for you, and that—that can be can be heartbreaking, actually. Yeah, I mean, you've honestly like convinced me that they should actually get all five people who've been nominated for the awards to do their speeches, and then we can vote based on who we thought had the best speech of who actually gets to take home the award. <laughs> that's great. I don't, yeah, the, the winner for the winner of. Best loser's speech is <laughs> Al Murray, the pub landlord. How well known is yes. he in Australia? I mean, yeah, well enough, I think. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, he got nominated for the Perry Award, the biggest mm. award in comedy. He got nominated in 96, 97, 98, and 99. And in 1999, he won it. So all his solo shows were nominated, top five shows by a panel of judges mm. who worked in the industry. And on the fourth year, the winner is Al Murray. The room went berserk. And he walked on stage and went, right, which one of four speeches do you want to hear? <laughs> Isn't that a great answer? I mean, it's such a great answer, but how weird is this? This is a classic comedy as a small world sort of thing, right? I was there in that room that night. And the reason that I can tell you 100% that I was there in that room that night is in that year, uh, nominated for the best newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe Award oh, was Will boy. Anderson. Good boy. But no, but, how did, how did that but here's, well, here's what I'm going to tell you. This was back in the days where they did not release 
the nominations before the night. They only announce them on the night. Now, I'd been invited along to the night, like to the award, right? And I knew that judges had kept coming to see my show right until the end. So I like had a suspicion. I wasn't like going in there completely blind to the fact, but did not know that I had been nominated when I went to those awards, which as you remember, were all about Al Murray having been nominated all those times and this was going to be the coronation year. And this is how it went down. It was the shortest moment to appreciate something in your entire life because it said, uh, and the nominations for Perry and Best Newcomer are um, uh, An Infinite Number of Monkeys, uh, Ben and Arn, and uh, Will Anderson, and the winner is Ben and Arn. That was it. That moment there in between Ben and Arn and Ben and Arn, I had about one second to go, oh, I've been nominated. Maybe I'll win the. Oh, no, I didn't win. Oh. <laughs> but it was... That that same night, the night you're talking about, that was that that evening. How old were you when you started? Uh, twenty one, I think. Twenty one, twenty two. Okay, 21. okay. So if you're younger than me, twenty eleven, you were okay. So you were you were. Well, I know how old you were. You were twenty twenty four because that's the year I met you. I met you in April nineteen ninety nine. This was August nineteen ninety nine. So you you were a young comedian who'd come from the other side of the world. Connected with our culture, you know, there there will be lines that you know you've got material that's Australia related. You know, you you talk about Vegemite, you're going to get booed off. <laughs> yeah, uh, the point is that. Um, by the way, I love Melbourne with a passion. I I think it is my top two favorite cities. The other one's Osaka in Japan, but the Vegemite is it's a poor substitute, mate, and it's got to go. It's just not, that is just not something that you can be saying to an Australian on an Australian podcast. I've been happy with everything so far, but I just can't. <laughs> Have I just lost a lot of fans? I just can't come out the I mean, Vegemite is just, it's just a, a good quality product, man. And I don't know what you're By talking about. By the way, about. I bought Vegemite when I was in Australia. I ate Vegemite mm. and I enjoyed Vegemite, but I remember thinking, this is 80% of what Marmite is. Mm, it's just I just don't feel like that's true. I, you know what I am about to like. What I love is this idea of getting involved in this pantomime that is based purely on us having emotional attachment to the thing we were raised <laughs> on versus the thing that's from somewhere else. When the products themselves are pretty much the same, except we prefer one or the other based on the fact that we were Absolutely. raised. Absolutely, uh, this is like, this is the nature nurture argument. If Will Anderson had grown up in England, yeah. would he be having this conversation with me about how much he loves Marmite? And the answer is yes. They're both wonderful. So, um, so your our show that got nominated, you came to a different country. The other hemisphere, and you got nominated for the award, and that's that's pretty cool. I remember Arj Barker won the newcomer award '97, and I thought that's pretty cool. You come over from San Francisco, and you've won an award. Yeah, well done. Oh no, you did win! No, you did win it. I <laughs> you, did you got not nominated. Win. I, got... <laughs> I need to point that out. I lost. Uh, to Ben and Arn, and I only had one second to even appreciate being nominated before I had already lost. So one second of joy, really, it only really brought to I, me. I don't know if this is a coincidence, but you know the difference between you and Ben and Arn? They grew up on Marmite. I rest my case. Right. <laughs> I mean, that. come on, you, you know better than that. That is not correlation. That is, uh, that is correlation, not causation, that, what you've just said there. That is absolute pure speculation. Adam, <laughs> I don't just talk about comedy on this podcast. I also 
like to talk to people about just life in general and like their philosophies on life. And so I ask people if they have any particular life philosophy on this show. And it can be in relation to anything, you know, like, you know, love or or life in general or like a broader spiritual philosophy or just a general, you know. And it's also a perfectly appropriate answer to say, no, I don't, if that is your answer to that question. But do you have like a a life philosophy that you could sum up? Well, my main my main thing that goes through my head is the, 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 the thing that you don't know what you've got till it, it's gone is the cruelest irony, I think, of life that, you know, I, mm-hmm. I look back on, I, I had a flat, uh, my marriage failed eight years ago. I had a flat overlooking Buckingham Palace, believe it or not, that I owned. And I had my wonderful wife and I had my one-year-old daughter. I've got two daughters now, but when I had just one, and I would, you know, just sit in my flat that was beautifully decorated and look at my daughter who's in my arms and learning to talk and, you know, and go, this is incredible. And then I look back at things that bothered me, you know, a pizza delivery guy who didn't have any change. So I had to give him a bigger tip than I wanted because he didn't have any change. So I'm like, mm. it's like, you know, I'm quite a generous tipper because I was a cocktail bartender and I'm, I'm big on tipping. I, I, I remember walking and going, should have had some change on him. Like, You're living in central London with a healthy, beautiful daughter and a, relatively successful career and a beautiful wife who loves you and you're walking from the front door through the flat past your art on the walls to your family annoyed about the fact that you had to give someone two pounds more this is not a a, 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 a window into my money attitude it's a, a window into the fact that i was bothered by a tiny thing right now I don't think my life's as good as it was when I was a new parent. But if I catch myself thinking something little, I think in 10 years' time, I'm going to look at now and think that. So let the little things go because in 10 years' time, you know, I I, I used to live in Crouch End and yesterday I went to visit a friend in Crouch End and I'm driving there, I parked my car and I went, these incredible memories of four and a half years living in Crouch End came back to me. Beautiful. Now, when I was living in Crouch End, I was thinking about a better time in my life. Now, I'm looking back at Crouch End <clears throat> when my dad was still alive, thinking of the memories I've got at Crouch End. So inevitably, there'll be a time I'm looking back at the day I did your podcast <coughs> when something bothered me. Oh, that was a great time. Do you remember you got up in the morning, you do it like this morning, I had to get up at quarter past seven. <coughs> I've trained for this morning for two days by having two early nights. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that, by the way. This afternoon at some point, I might be tired. No, I appreciate you having me on the show. But this afternoon, I might be tired and go, hmm, not enough sleep. Then I'll look back in a few years' time. Do you remember that day you were tired and you were moaning about being tired? But all these wonderful things happened to you. I've got a great day planned today. So the bottom line is let the little things go because one day these will be the good times you're looking back on wishing you didn't let the little things go so yeah every moment of your life is a potential time to look back on and wish you appreciated it more so appreciate every moment of your life i love that like i i mean i've heard people talk about obviously letting the little things go before but i love your framing of it of like you know of that idea of that you when you do look back you, you do not think of any of those little things. They aren't the things that are important and framing your current situation through looking to the future again. Anyway, that's just a nice 
a way of kind of storytelling that that really like makes it resonate a little bit more than somebody saying don't sweat the small stuff i like that a lot that was cool oh okay well trevor crook i I mentioned trevor crook from sydney who's one of my favorite comedians he told me a lovely buddhist uh fable there's a guy who's hanging from a branch on the end of a cliff and the branch is slowly snapping and he's looking down to his doom he's going to die the branch is breaking he can't hold on to anything else and he's looking down a thousand feet and he sees a berry growing from the branch. And you know what he does? He picks the berry and eats it so he can enjoy the taste of that berry because he's still got some life left. I'm going to enjoy the berry. Now, when he first told me that, I thought, yeah, we're still going to die. I missed the point. The point is he has a moment of life there and he's going to make the most of it. And I told my dad that and he said, yeah, but by eating the berry, He's heavier. He's going to die earlier. <laughs> Isn't that great? Um, so uh, I love the, the way my dad had a, a, a comic spin on it. But, you know, every like, I'm 53 in less than a month. And I feel like I'm using life more than ever now. Because you go, okay, have I got, have I got 20 years left? Have I got 25 years left? I've been doing comedy 30 years. In 30 years, I'll be 83. If I do everything again, comedy-wise experience wise, I don't mean the, the, the same gigs. There's a boom mic moment. If I do uh, if I do thirty years of this again, I'll be eighty three. Well life expectancy is I think eighty three or eighty four or eighty two in England. It's probably hundred and twenty in Australia because you've got far less stress than us. But the thing is that that so now I'm going, well actually I'm enjoying sipping a coffee before I go out and get in my car and, and hearing the engine t- working and then and they're putting the music on. I, like, for example, let's I do a short drive to the gym. It's seven minutes. I won't bother plugging my phone into this. No, of course I plug my phone in. That's seven minutes. That's the berry. That's a berry moment there. I'm going to plug my phone. I'm gonna, why would I not enjoy some music in that seven minutes? Why can't I make every moment the best it can be? So <clears throat> I think there's something about being my age that's making me enjoy life more because I'm taking it less for granted. And I think when you're 20 years old and you do nothing for two days, you don't even get dressed or whatever, you're sitting around and bored. You know, I'm bored is an awful thing to say. If, you, if you're bored, the chances are you're boring because you shouldn't be bored. There's so much around you to do. You can not like your job. You go, oh, this is tedious. But if you've got energy and something isn't bothering you, you should be enjoying life. And life is a gift. I remember as a kid, people would go, life's a gift. Oh, it's not a gift. I didn't ask to be born. Well, it is a gift because there's 14 billion years of preparation for your 80 years. It, that's a big, that's a lot of setup for you to enjoy. 14 billion years to get it like this. And you're born, you go, right, I can have the coffee. I didn't work out how the coffee beans turn into a drink and it's nice, it gives you a buzz. All the things around you, all the technology, the fact that you're 10 and a half thousand miles away from him, we're talking now. It's all beautiful. And so I feel like I'm kind of, although my marriage failing was a was the biggest dent in my life by a mile, I'm still happy because I've still got two beautiful daughters. I've got a, an ex who I'm friends with and I can provide for them. She works too, but my pose, I can do my bit. And when I do a gig and I, I get to a gig and there's an audience there, I'm more appreciative than ever. I mean, a room of people who are prepared to give, spend money to listen to you speak and pay your bills to hear you say words. That's the most incredible thing. All the things around you in your home were you got 
access to those things by saying words based on a thought you had. That's unbelievable. And if you get a comedian who's pissed off because they think they should be more successful, on, on paper, I should be five times more successful than I am looking at my CV, looking at my I don't care because I love my job. And as long as I can still provide and eat and keep warm, then I've got the best job in the world. There's nothing, nothing. It, if you love your job, you are set. Yeah, it's interesting to me what you say about, because I do have those moments occasionally and I do have to remind myself, I'm like, you're getting paid for saying words in a fun way. Like that's like your literal, and today you had a bad job day at your job where you think up ideas and say them out loud and then people give you money in return for that. Like, come on, you're running a giant con. Like the fact that you've got away with it for this long is, you know, don't worry. Like, I mean, I, I understand what you mean and I like the way that you said it. Can I ask you, 14 billion years you referenced, you know. Give, give or take a week. Give or take a week. Yeah. It depends on when people listen to this podcast. They might be listening to it you know, <laughs> in a billion years from now, you know. So, um, but do you? What do you think? You've obviously you lost your father, and I, I'm so so sorry for you. And uh, what do you think happens when we die? Like, do you have a belief system around? Like, I, you know, I are you a person who believes in we were nothing and we go back to nothing, or do you have like a spiritual or religious belief system? I think mine's neither spiritual or religious. I think that your body's a physical thing, right? So if I chop your arm off, you still mm. will. I stop the other arm, you still will. So your body isn't you. You know, your, your cells are changing all the time, right? So the you that's you is an invisible thing inside you that therefore can't be destroyed. You can't destroy an invisible thing. that You can't catch it. Good luck trying to chop someone's soul up. You know, it, it, it's... So I don't think life can be destroyed, no. I don't know where it goes, but I don't think it can be destroyed. So my dad's body is under the ground. But my dad can't go under the ground, no, because he's not in his body. The body's gone. The, your body's a car, and you're the driver. And when the body stops working, you step out of the car. When the car stops working, you get out of it. Car, car's broken down. Mechanics says we can't fix it. You, you step out the car, the car gets crushed. So I don't believe you know. It's, the, the, what we're asking here is the existence of a soul, aren't we? That's what we're discussing. Yeah, it is. Like, and 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 whether you and what you feel that is as well, I guess. Like, what is that? You know, there's the scientific explanation for what life is and why life is what it's like. But we work in the business of you know funny sounds and words and noises and trying to you know unite a group of strangers together in a you know at laughing you know moment, right? Like. Why? Why is that part of, you know, this, if, you know, like, what, what do you think, you know, where does music come from? Where does art come from? Where does comedy come from? Like, where does, you know, the, all these things that make us human beings, where do you think they come from? What's amazing, people always go, every industry thinks what they do separates um, humans from the animals. You also you know, laughter is what separates humans from the animals. Okay, okay. Well, hyenas would disagree. Um, so then you go, then you yeah. go, then you, then you go, you talk to a chef, they go, enjoying food is what separates you. you go, no, your industry is what separates you. Your blinkered view of the world outside your industry is what separates human from the animals. Um, I judged a, 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 an art competition, you know, Banksy, the graffiti artist, 
um, he, yes. he had a competition called Gross Domestic Product, and he gave away 870 Banksies, ranging from a sp- spray can with his signature scratched into it, uh, so it would be painted matte black, and then he'd scratch in with a key or whatever, so it would be a white Banksy, to the Union Jack stab vest that the rapper Stormzy wore at Glastonbury, which is worth £200,000. Mm-hmm. People ended the competition saying, why does art matter in 50 words or fewer? And I judged it, believe it or not. I, they had to have a, 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 an independent judge. And I judged it. It took me four days. I went through, randomly went through 272,000 emails. And I randomly just went, pluck, do I like that one or not? Yes or no? And they, they were not bidding. They were asking to buy the spray can for £10 or the St- Stormzy stab vest for £850. Bearing in mind, they are £199,000 better off if they win it. And I wrote down my favourite. This was a really, this was a global competition. It was a big, big, big thing. Um, and I, I'm going to read you one. My favourite answers, 20 favourite answers. Listen to this. So the word creativity, no, the word expression or express amounted to one in seven of the 272 answers. I searched the word express, got the numbers, then expression got numbers, did a, the, the math. It was one in seven answers. Can you imagine how boring it got reading expression one in seven times for four eight-hour days? Can you imagine how tedious it got? And every now and again, there would be one that, you know, I don't like the phrase thinking outside the box, but they would come out. Anyway, so this is the one I love. So the question is, does art matter? And this person wrote, art, like all matter, is neither created nor destroyed, merely transformed. You like it? Um, I mean, I love it. It's a good answer. It also, I mean, it's it's clever in of itself, but it's a good answer to a competition. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're playing on the word matter, but the point is that once yes. the Big Bang happened, everything that you're, a Tesla is made mm. out of the stuff that happened after the Big Bang. Yes. And so are everyone's children. And there's the idea that a sperm and an egg meet and it keeps making more people forever and plants have the seeds and they grow. You know, you continue growing. All of that and the Tesla came from the matter that happened the moment the universe started. And that's, that's... that's pretty amazing that nothing's new. It's, and when you go creativity, you were made by sperm and egg going back and back and back and back and back and back. And the ideas you have are all from a brain that was made from stuff after the Big Bang. So I just love the fact that nothing is new in the sense that it's all made out of what's already there. So art, all art, is a product of the brains and the paint and the microphones that are created from that moment. It's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, that's a very cool way of putting it. I appreciate that very much. Uh, hypothetical question. Now, this is a, you have to choose one or the other. I just want a, your hypothetical answer to this question. When you say hypothetical question, that means, sounds like you means you're not actually asked to be a question. Well, it's true. Yeah. I mean, well, here's what I'd like to say is, what I'm really saying when I say hypothetical question, it's clear in the question that it is hypothetical. <laughs> okay. And so I'm incorrectly using it and I know that I'm using it incorrectly 
But the purpose of it, I'll run you through the whole thing now. It'll be like my version of your book. But uh, basically, the question is this. Would you prefer to know when or how you die? Now, the reason that I do my little preamble normally is I don't like people to say neither. That's not – we're just playing a game. Like, yes, I understand that you might like to not know when or how you die. Like, that's okay. That's But in for the purpose of this question, I would like to know if you were, had to know one or the other, when or how you died, which of those two things would you choose? Well, I think if you can't control it, it may as well be when. Because if it's how you're going to die, there's no avoiding it. If it says you're going to die falling out of a building, and then you avoid all tall buildings, you will eventually end up in a tall building. You might get kidnapped and you try to escape. You're like, damn, I'm in a tall building. I want to escape. Nah, that's the fate I was told. Well, I'm not going to escape. Then you don't escape. Then you get interviewed by the police who, who saved you. Go, why don't you jump out the building, you idiot? It's like, well, because I was told well, I'm going to die for the building. <laughs> and then you end up, you know, being kidnapped again. And then you think, I'm not doing that again. I'm, the police are going to hate me when they tell I go, not you again, you idiot. So I jump out the building and I die. So I would say knowing how you're going to die is pointless because you can't avoid it. It's your fate. So know when you're going to die and make the most of your life between now and that moment. I'll tell you one thing, Will, no offense, but if they say you're going to die at 9.40 on, the, what is it, the 14th? Uh, what's the date? 15th. Oh, there's a boom mic moment. When's this coming out? Sorry, everyone. This is not live. <laughs> I just took a massive boom mic in this. If I was told I'd be dying... 20 minutes before this ends, I would end this interview early and go and eat some berries. So I'd rather know I'd rather know when I'm going to die. Yeah, it would change your behavior. But I'm not going to tell you. It's in 20 minutes and these are your berries, Adam. So a couple more. We're almost at the end of this, by the way. There's not really? 20 more minutes. You're wow. like, yeah, we've got like... Got another three questions, and then I'm I'm pretty happy. I feel like we've like done everything that we needed to do here tonight. I've enjoyed all of this. There's been some really great stuff, and I've like loved this chat. And I want to leave some stuff up the sleeve so people can actually read the book because I highly recommend that people read this book. Like not just people What's who work called, in comedy. What's it called, Will? The, oh, mate, I will. I can read it off the front of your like copy, like just because I you sound you sounded like you were being doubtful about the fact that I have a copy of no. your book. No, 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 you've got me completely wrong. I thought it was nicer if you said the title than I did because that self-promotion moment can be a bit cringy, can't it? No, Finding Your Comic Genius, An In-Depth Guide to the Art of Stand-Up Comedy by Adam Bloom. How about this as a quote on the front cover? He's been one of my favourite stand-ups for about 10 years. That's from Ricky Gervais, and this one is from Jim Jeffries. No one on earth knows more about stand-up comedy than Adam Bloom. So if you if you don't trust the, you know, hour and, you know, 40 you've already heard of this podcast, if you're not convinced by now, then uh, that some of the best comedians in the world have endorsed Adam and his work, and I really enjoyed this book. And it's one of those ones I definitely think that I am going to be reading again and, uh, you know, uh, challenging myself. You know, I'm actually in the part of my writing you know, at the moment where I'm thinking a lot about the writing and what, you know, next year's show will be. So it's been a nice book to, you know, be reading during this time because it challenges the way that you think about things and that's, you know, always a always a good thing to do. As long as you know, that that was the point. I wanted I didn't want to say the title myself. I wasn't I didn't doubt it for a second. I listen, the the the, the questions you've asked about the book are 
100% proof you read it. I, I just didn't want to say, and what's your book called, Adam? It's called Finding Your Comic Genius. You're, like the, yep. you're, you're watching a chat show yes. and um, you had Bert Newton, didn't you? Bert Newton was, your, was the big one, right? They just called him Moonface, didn't they? And, um, you know, if he interviews you, I did, I, he interviewed me in 1999 and it's like, and where's your show? And it's that moment you've got to go, I'm at the Melbourne Town Hall. And at that moment, it's like, oh, that's the only reason you're here. It takes some of the charm away. But, you know, I, if, you'd, if you'd asked me to do your podcast and I didn't have a book out, I'd jump at the chance to do it. I think it's when you have a, something that you're, you're passionate about that's just happened, it makes the interview e- easier, doesn't it? Because if you just go, Adam, what have you been up to? You know, we'd still talk. You and I could talk for 10 hours, I think. We've always had great chats. You, you, I remember you were, you were this young, tall, handsome man. You were charming. You were a little bit cocky because you knew you were going places. But you, but you, not, I did, I didn't. Oh come on! I didn't you, say you, no, you Adam. I just out. laughed. I, 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 no, what was lovely about you was what was lovely about you. You were good. You were handsome. You are handsome. But there was a what that was interesting about you. You had the cockiness of someone that knew you were going to be successful. But you had the humility of somebody who would talk to someone who'd been going longer than them or was older than them or both with respect. And that's a lovely thing because there's nothing worse than the young comedian who doesn't acknowledge the people around them. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they almost think like, oh, like there's this currency now on Instagram followers. So this new comedian will turn up to a gig. I've only been on Instagram for two months because I, I, I joined to promote my book. I was not on Instagram. I've got a thousand followers on Instagram. And this new comedian will turn up. They're cocky. They're inexperienced. They go on. They don't have a great gig, but they swagger. They don't even watch the rest of the show. They leave. They leave before the show's finished because they don't care about the show. They care about them. They're going home to edit the clip, put the subtitles on. And I watch this comedian. I think you are not good yet. But the swagger they've got is. But I've got two hundred thousand followers on Instagram. I haven't heard of you because you, you're not Instagram. Huh? I don't know who you are. In my world of Instagram, you're nobody. And I'm like, yeah, but in this room of audiences watching, audience members wanting to watch a good comedian, you're not a 200,000 follower credit uh, in this room because the audience aren't looking at your followers. They're looking at what you're doing. So what I liked about you was you had all the swagger of a young comedian who was good. And you were good. You were good then. But you had the humility that, that I think is a, a vital thing. I, I, I talked to. Um, a very successful comedian last week, and they were introduced to an even more successful comedian, a stadium-filling comedian, and they said that this this comedian who, who met them for the first time talked down to him. And this comedian, the, the, the one who didn't fill stadiums, was a hundred times more revered within the industry because of their groundbreaking approach to comedy. And I thought, how dare you patronize someone because they don't fill stadiums when they've been going 15, 20 years longer than you. And they are on the, on the comedian's comedian list. They're at number four and you're at number 200. And you've got the gall to talk to them like you're more important than them. Here's what I'll say about that with that I find really interesting because one of the, th- I, and I do hear what you're saying and I think there has been like a change you know, and I, because one of the things I loved about comedy, there was a thing that Seinfeld said years ago, like when I was first starting comedy, I would have watched that movie Comedian, you know, that he made with Orny Adams Amazing. about, you Amazing. know, 
it's an and you know like I would have watched that and but I I think that he talked at one stage about comedians having a secret handshake with each other and there was no sort of hierarchy in the way that you're just talking about because we all knew that it was just about being in that room and proving it with each other and making that show and doing it on that night and that we'd all come from small rooms and like knew that small rooms are sometimes the best gigs like the size of the room like I bet if I said to you name your top dozen gigs of your life like you wouldn't be rating them on the size of the venues you performed in your memories would sometimes they'd be quite small venues where you had these you know memories that you'll have for like you know a very long time and so it used to not really be like that I don't think I don't feel like there was that idea that the amount of tickets you sold or the size of the stadium that you performed in gave you some sort of Maybe I'm just naive, but it just the thing I always loved about comedy was that everyone talked to everybody. Like, I never considered that there was those, you know, everyone got in a van together and went to the gig. Like, you know, everyone talked to everyone. This is why I was so angry when this comedian told me this story that they were ushered into the presence of this superstar. And rather than the superstar going, I'm a big fan. I watch you. You know, I watch you on TV before I was doing comedy. That kind of thing. They acted like, oh yeah, you're lucky to meet me. And I was like, no, 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 no. You're lucky to meet him because he's one of the people that paved the way for you. But yeah, there is. A, I mean, you know, I'm I'm often at weddings and funerals and ch- charity events where you're watching somebody who is earning tens of millions of pounds talking to somebody who can't pay their rent, but they are equal because they're both good comedians. And they're both having fun together, and and I, I, it's a beautiful thing. There's no, yeah, we're just and and the, the, you know, of course, there's an unspoken hierarchy because there's somebody who is in the walks of the room who's doing really well, but they know that on another roll of the dice, the other comedian might have had a bit more successful successful career because right place, right time, fit the you know, you fit what they're looking for. So it, I think it's absolutely beautiful. I was I was down the pub recently with with a big name comedian who is surrounded by, you know, jobbing comedians who, who make a living hand to mouth. And, and, you know, they've got to get paid. They're owed four gigs. They're like, I've got to get paid for these gigs. I've got, I've got to pay my bills. And they're equal. And it, it's an abs- absolutely beautiful thing because what they have in common is they're all funny and they go on stage every night. You know, if someone comes up to me in, like, in the street and says, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm doing open spots, you know, I've just started doing comedy, immediately we're the same because we both did one thing and that's we made the leap to try that first gig not knowing if it would work and you know and i know that a lot of people spend their whole 20s and 30s wondering if they could get around to that first gig and then a lot of them don't which is tragic because they never got to find out but one thing all comedians have in common the one thing we all have in common is we did our first gig so therefore if anyone comes up to me and go i'm doing stand-up I go, right, well, you're like me because you made that leap. We've all jumped out the airplane and pulled the cord. I agree. That's the secret handshake, right? We did it. We yes. We all thought that it was something that we could do and we all gave it a go. And we all understand like that, taking that risk. Like I admire anyone who tries it. That's why I've never been a person who's been like one of those comedians who mocks open micers and I'm sure there's been times in my life particularly when I was an open micer myself where I'm sure that I did you know but 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 as I find like 
you know, like a baby giraffe learning to walk. Like I'm, I love watching somebody do comedy for the first time, even if they're not good. I find it, I'm like, look at you, look at you doing that. That's, that's great. There's only one thing more pleasurable than watching a baby giraffe learning to walk. And that's a baby giraffe falling over. <laughs> of course not. Um, the, 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 um, uh, oh, I had a point. I had a point. Oh, and, oh, it's not awful. Do you know that moment when you can't remember the point you were going to make? In that 10 seconds between forgetting it and remembering it, you think you've got the most profound thing to say. Then you remember it, and it was just like, oh, yeah, I saw a good comedian the other day. That's it. Mm. Um, I, but let me enjoy. Yeah. Let me enjoy not remembering. In fact, I'm going to try not to remember because I can spend the rest of my life excited that I've got something profound to say. I told you that I had three questions to ask, and we've got no qu- closer to those three questions in the last ten minutes. When I told the you, one was that. when so when you're going to die gonna, or how you're going to die. No, I've got I've got three more now. I've got three final questions. Is what I'm saying. So uh, the first one is: Could you please share with me? either or both, the best or worst piece of advice that you ever received? The worst advice I ever got was um, I was backstage at a gig and I was talking about an idea I had. I was a new comedian bursting with uh, enthusiasm and I was talking about striving for originality and a comedian who wasn't really that original said, there's only one type of laugh, Adam, meaning if they're laughing, it's good. If they're not laughing, it's bad. And I couldn't disagree more. There are lots of laughs. There are rich laughs. There's knee-jerk laughs where you laugh, then you think, oh, actually, it wasn't that funny, but it just sounded like a joke, had the rhythm of a joke, and, you know, it's forgotten. And then there's that laugh that gets you guttural, and you go, oh, my God, like Doug Stanhope, when they tell you a brutal truth about life. Then there's the joyous laugh of someone like Tim Vine, when you get that silly, happy-to-be-alive, oh, it's so it's, human existence is, is fun. So there's only one type of laugh is is such a, shallow way of looking at what comedy is so that's the worst advice i got the best advice i got was a comedian called andre vincent and i was nervous about corporate gig i was doing and i was getting paid a lot of money and i felt the pressure of having you know all that money and therefore responsibility and he went a gig's a gig and what i like about that is if there's 20 people in a pub that holds 50 people and they paid five pounds to see you you owe them just as much of a performance as someone who's paid you a lot of money because it's people giving their time to you. So a gig is a gig in the sense that you as a comedian, the second you step on stage, every gig is just as important as, as another one. There'll be a gig that might lead to bigger things, but that's about your career. But with the, the 20 minutes or whatever it is that you're on stage, a gig is a gig because it's people who are giving you their time and you des- they deserve the best you can do. So a gig is a gig, but there's certainly not only one type of laugh. Uh, Love it. Okay, Uh, two more questions and then we're done. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You are just going to wake up tomorrow and you will have a skill. You can interpret skill in whatever way you want, but like you don't need to learn or have the hard work to do it. You just have this particular skill. What skill would you like to wake up with? Oh, that's a good one. Maybe I would be a a Wi-Fi router wherever I am. Oh, oh! Then people gravitate <laughs> towards me, and I get a sense of importance. I, I, I don't. I, look, the thing is, like my hobbies, I do close-up magic as a hobby. I'm quite obsessive about it as well. I think that if you, mm. if it can be done, 
and you haven't done it, then then why? Uh, I'm 52. Why have I not done it? So I I, I, I like close up magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, here we go. I got it. I got it. I played the flute from the age of uh, seven to 13, and I gave up because my homework was getting too much. And my, and my dad was heartbroken. And all they had to have was a conversation with me and my teacher. And we could have worked out that just give me less homework and I could maybe cope. So I'd like to be able to play the flute immediately, like I did when I last played it. Now that makes me think, well, why don't you do it then? So what you've just done a very helpful thing, Will. You've made me go and get my flute out. I've still got it. Because why would you put, you know, you don't want to be at the end of, end of your life wishing you could live your life again. You want to be at the end of your life being glad of what you did. So thank you, Will. My neighbors are going to hate you. <laughs> oh, no, the flute's okay to hear from next door. That's okay. Like, yeah, that's not bad. It's a good question, though, because if the, if the answer is, the question is to that answer is, why are you not doing it then? Uh, if I had a time machine and I could take you to any point, either in the future or the past, um, but it is one round trip and you have no social responsibilities. So you don't have to go and warn people about climate change. And as I like to say, you have, there is no requirement to go and kill Hitler unless your particular passion in life has always been to kill Hitler, in which case I will not stand in front of your dreams. But this is purely a selfish trip on a time machine. Would you go forward in time or backward in time? Okay, let me think about that. Um, first of all, this kill Hitler thing is very short-sighted when people talk about killing Hitler, and I'll tell you why. He's not the only evil person who's existed, and when you change the past and therefore change the future, who's to say that the knock-on effect of all the people who would have lived as a result of him dying, amongst all those people, who's to say there wasn't a worse Hitler? So this idea, like I go back and I kill Hitler, okay, so there's no more bad people going to live after him? There could have been a worse one. You kill Hitler and the next day someone's born who wouldn't have been born because someone met someone through the knock-on effect of him being there. And they're worse. So it, it's so, so uh, naive to think killing Hitler solves that problem. It, it's, you know, whatever problem you, 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 you get a bad experience, let's say you lend someone some money, they rip you off, you're hurt, your friend betrayed you. I'm never going to do that again. Well, who's to say that if you hadn't done that and hadn't learned that lesson, someone would have ripped you off for more and made you feel even worse, someone closer to you, let's say a good friend ripped you off for 10 grand. If you'd said no, you wouldn't have had that lesson, then a a partner you marry who marries you for money and lies to you and falls in love with you as a trick and then they rip you off for your house and you'll go, well, by being ripped off for 10 grand, stop a worse thing happening to you. So be grateful for all your mistakes because they could have led to worse mistakes if you hadn't made them. So it's all that, oh, imagine how good my life would have been if I hadn't let that thing happen. Maybe look at what might have happened worse if you hadn't learned that lesson. Uh, With regard to time, I go back in time to five minutes ago and not bored you with that answer. No, I love that answer. There was nothing. There was really? nothing wrong with that answer at all. It was good. Like basically, you know, it, that's right. You go back, you kill Hitler, you get worse Hitler. Then you have to send someone back to kill worse Hitler. Like, and, I mean, you've started a whole. Have you thought about the fact you're going to go to prison for killing him? Because he hasn't done anything wrong yet. <laughs> Presumably, you're going to kill him before he did anything bad. You go. What? You, no, this is what you have to do. I go back in time and kill Hitler. The day after he's done something awful, mm. so at least I'm at least I'm a hero. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I go back to the moment of the Big Bang, and just watch with some popcorn and a beanbag 
and just be able to go, wow, I was there. I mean, imagine if it isn't as good as you imagine, though. Like if you sit there and you go, actually, that wasn't just, I don't know. I didn't really have the framework to appreciate it. What about this? <laughs> what about go back to 10 minutes before the Big Bang and only see it to like one second before and you'll come back and go, you know that feeling where you just miss something amazing? Oh, yeah. I got to experience the tension just before it. Imagine that. <laughs> And what happened? They'll go, what happened? You go, absolutely nothing. It was amazing because I got to experience the anticipation of knowing the Big Bang was just about time. Why didn't you stay for another second? Ah, I got bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not into explosions, but the the 10 seconds before the Big Bang, <laughs> really enjoyed them. Uh, Adam Bloom, thank you so much for chatting to me tonight. Well, this morning where you are, uh, tonight where I am, and I – appreciate it very much it's been so lovely to see your face and have a chat to you and uh i honestly really did love your book i, I do recommend that people uh, you know buy it and read it and uh, i think they will find it very fascinating so thank you very much for doing this thank you thank you so much this has flown by and it's been a joy seeing you thank you will <laughs>